Goodwill Media exists to advance the fight against all forms of poverty globally. How do we do it? So glad you asked. We believe better communications drives more effective development. We work with leading communications experts from across the Pacific to create localised, culturally informed content that inspires, empowers and drives action. We're experienced in communicating to people at a local level, all the way up to a national level. You can work with us to develop and implement a streamlined approach to communications on development projects in Australia, the Pacific and Timor-Leste. And you can trust we'll combine international best practice with unrivalled local knowledge and experience. I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn, CEO of Goodwill Media. This summer series of Goodwill Hunters is brought to you by Goodwill Media because we're passionate about creating really good content based on evidence and experience to help shape the progress and development of our societies. So, enjoy the episode hosted by Australian Council for International Development's Director Bridie Rice and get in touch with us if you're ready to localise and upgrade your communications. Poverty alleviation should still be a core goal of our international development efforts, even as we seek to apply more foreign aid to strategic goals. 2020 was a big year when it came to Australian foreign policy. The pandemic brought out the best and the worst in politicians and policymakers around the world, and Australia was busy. The government launched a new development policy and a defence strategic update. We watched trade relations with China deteriorate, we endured the US election, saw signs of re-engagement in Southeast Asia, and of course, we saw a resurgence in poverty for the first time in 20 years, as the pandemic hit emerging economies in our region hard. And as my guest today, Richard Maud, describes, never has there been a more important time to pause, contest, and carefully construct a way forward for Australian development and foreign policy. I'm Bridie Rice, Director at the Australian Council for International Development and your guest host this summer at Goodwill Hunters. Today, you're listening to the first of a six-part series on development and foreign policy. Richard and I kick off our discussion with the basics. What is foreign policy and how is it made? Richard makes the case for why Australia's foreign policy white paper needs an update in 2021 and sets out two key principles he thinks must guide Australian development. Richard and I recorded this episode just prior to Christmas. It was great to chat with Richard. His insights are thoughtful, reflective and honest. And I think you'll get to hear a little more of the real Richard Maud in this interview as he reveals what he did and didn't know about development as one of Australia's top diplomats, as well as what has touched him most during COVID-19. And he also offers up some great summer reading tips. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the Goodwill Media and Ackford social media channels so you can join us to continue the discussion. Enjoy this episode and join me next week when I'll be speaking to international aid and development journalist Lisa Cornish on the role of the media in shaping Australian development. Richard, welcome to Goodwill Hunters Summer Series on Development and Foreign Policy. Great to have you here. Thanks very much, Bridie. It's a real pleasure to be here. Richard, I can think of no better person to start this series with. Today, we're talking about how Australia makes foreign policy and why development matters. And you held the pen on Australia's most recent foreign policy white paper as a Deputy Secretary in the Department of Foreign Affairs. Of course, since departing government a year ago, you've taken up the reins as the Director of the Crawford Leadership Forum at ANU, and you're the inaugural Executive Director at the Asia Society Policy Institute. 
In 2020, you burst onto the scene with some superb commentary in publications like the Fin Review, The Guardian, and we're seeing you all the time on regular panel appearances. Well, you're increasingly calling for a foreign policy rethink. So before we jump into that debate and we get into the nuts and bolts of foreign policy and development, I want to kick off this episode with a bit about who you are and what's shaped you. Can you tell me about some of the earlier influences in your life? Yeah, look, I think, Brody, two things um, that, that stand out for me when I think about things that have shaped me through my whole life. One was um, a love of reading and books, and that was instilled by my mother. She was a school librarian at the local primary school, so we always had a lot of books in the house, and my parents read to me, uh, you know, religiously when I was a child. I always look forward to being read to at night. And I really learnt the power of good prose, but also of storing storytelling. And that led me almost accidentally, I have to say, to a very early career in journalism. And the lessons I learnt there about good writing have stood me in really good stead ever since, right up to and including the foreign policy white paper and now with Asia Society and all that public writing that you mentioned. The second thing was uh, travel, and my father was a demographer at a university in Adelaide, and in the 1970s he did a lot of field work uh, in Indonesia. He was also attached to USM in Penang for a while, and on two long occasions we all went with him, and Southeast Asia really got into the blood. We, you know, we lived in local communities as really quite little kids and uh, did some amazing things. And um, so that's remained, uh, Southeast Asia's remained a great love uh, ever since. And it's no surprise, really, I think, that ultimately I ended up in an international relations career and nor that two of my three postings with uh, DFAT were in Southeast Asia. Richard, that's an incredible story. I think there's lots of diplomats around that uh, combine a love of both journalism and travel as well. Although I have to ask, what was your favourite kids' book when you got read to? My strongest memories were being read The Hobbit. I remember being gripped night after night, and my father did most of the reading. Um, and I, I just remember being lost in this incredible world of imagination and, and adventure as a very little boy. Richard, we are here chatting today not just because you were a budding journalist and you're rekindling that flame, but because of one simple fact, and that is that for the first time in a generation, really that's over 20 years, the World Bank is predicting a rise in extreme poverty, including in Southeast Asia. And this is raising a question about the long game for Australia and our relations in the region, a region full of emerging economies. So can you tell me a little about what increased poverty in our neighbourhood means to you? Yeah, well, obviously it's um, very significant and very concerning because it breaks uh, you know, a, re a really remarkable period where economic growth in our region has lifted many, many people out of dire poverty. And the growth prospects of our region, particularly Southeast Asia, uh, were reasonably good. Uh, and now, as you say, we've had this immense setback and the World Bank, of course, has put out forecasts about just how big that interruption uh, has been in that story about economic growth and lifting people out of poverty and tens of millions more people who will be pushed back into poverty. And in Southeast Asia, we see that um, particularly because 
you know, there are many, uh, many people in Southeast Asia who were living reasonably comfortably, but in a very economically fragile or vulnerable sense. And they now have been pushed back into poverty after lifting themselves out of it. So for Australia, um, you know, if you think that it's in our national interest, which it very much is for our region to be stable and cohesive and economically growing and absent the tensions and stress that come with a great deal of poverty, um, these are all negative developments and it's really in Australia's interest to do what we can uh, to try and help countries uh, recover their economic growth, to return to the path of economic growth, to respond to the very urgent need of many millions of people in our region in just staying alive on a day-to-day basis, and then also to plan for the long term. Richard, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but those of us outside the department didn't exactly know you as a major advocate of development, inclusive economic growth uh, during your time in the department. But recently you have been in the press quite a lot, speaking about increasing our development footprint in Southeast Asia, calling for not just a broader foreign policy rethink, but a, a, a longer term development policy as well. What's changed, if anything, for you? When I became Deputy Secretary in in the Indo-Pacific Group, um, that was after 28 years working on foreign policy and national security, but I'd never worked on aid at all. Uh, this was at the time before the Office of Pacific Affairs was established, and so nominally I had roughly half our aid program uh, under my oversight, um, but I didn't understand it at all. I was also out of the department doing other things when AusAid and DFAT were merged, so I missed all of that drama, if not trauma, for, for many people. And to be really honest with you, I, I just didn't know up from down. There wasn't really a view to change, if that makes sense to you. It took quite a while to build even the most modest base of understanding, and still to this day, of course, I've never designed aid programs. I've never run them or implemented them. It's also true that during that time, the aid program was under an enormous amount of pressure, was suffering a number of cuts and reprioritizations. And whatever I might have made of that as a public service servant inside the tent, I accepted then. And I also accept now, Bridie, that you can get to give your best advice, but at the end of the day, governments make decisions. And it's no point doing those jobs if you can't accept that. Uh, and it's certainly not professional to, to speak out publicly about those issues where you're inside government. But look, to the extent that one can form views about something as complex as foreign aid, you know, delivering it effectively and efficiently in two short, really tumultuous years, I'd say that I uh, became guided by two broad principles. One is that poverty alleviation should still be a core goal of our international development efforts, even as we seek to apply more foreign aid to strategic goals. And secondly, as a wealthy nation, we, we should be spending more than $4 billion a year, including in Southeast Asia, not, notwithstanding its recent development. So I think those two overarching principles is, I suppose, how I came out of those two years. And uh, those are the two principles that I've been writing about really after government. And Richard, during that journey, uh, from being quite new to the aid program then sitting on, as you say, almost half of it. What 
What would you say that you know now that you didn't understand back at the beginning about aid and development? I think the thing that really has struck me the hardest is that um, getting aid right is really hard. I mean, we don't have a lot of money, relatively speaking, when you look at the scale of the problem. Our aid budget is uh, spread very thin these days. And in fact, some of our smartest aid minds argue that, you know, we are doing too much and we should concentrate what we're doing. It's very hard to affect change within other countries. I mean, we don't run governments, we don't make policy. There are many things that can uh, make aid with even the best attentions go awry. And some of the most fundamental causes of poverty are really hard to shift. So designing aid that's going to work and have impact and also can have an impact that's really uh, more than the sum of the money you're putting into it is actually quite hard to do. And it really does require uh, deep expertise and long experience, I think, to give yourself the best chance of getting that right. So, Richard, we've covered off on a couple of key concepts so far. We've looked at what economic backsliding means in our region. You've set out two principles for what you think an effective development program would look like, and that is poverty alleviation as the primary goal, notwithstanding strategic interests, and secondly, that the budget does matter and needs to increase. I want to move into a conversation more around how development fits with Australian foreign policy. And I'd like us to start with the foreign policy piece first. So can you talk us through the basics of what is foreign policy and how does it relate to development? Yeah, foreign policy, you know, it's one of those things that many people know it when they see it, but it's sometimes hard to actually describe. But let me, let me give you a couple of quick uh, definitions. Alan Gingell, uh, who'd be well known, I'm sure, to many of your readers, a very eminent Australian foreign policy expert, he wrote a book called Fear of Abandonment, and he says uh, in that, this is his very elegant definition, that, that, uh, that the primary function of foreign policy is to expand the international space within which the nation state can operate to increase its options and maximise maximize its choices. I've, and I've always really liked that definition of foreign policy. Another more sort of utilitarian way of thinking about foreign policy is that it's how we develop and then organise all the ways in which Australia's engagement with the world can advance our national interests. And in foreign policy, national interests are usually fairly described in fairly high-level terms. So obviously the prosperity of our nation is a key one. Uh, the security and safety and freedom of our people is a second one. And in the white paper, we actually had a third one, the independence of Australia's decision-making, which gets to our sovereignty. Um, and so, you know, that's, I think, the easiest way to think about foreign policy. And aid, of course, as we've already discussed, fits very neatly into those definitions because it's, uh, it's easier for us to maximise our choices or our international space, to use Alan's definition, or if you prefer, it's better for us to advance our own prosperity and security if our own neighbourhood is also prosperous and secure. Um, the last point I just wanted to make on this, uh, Bridie, of course, is that I've talked a lot about interests mostly here, but 
foreign policy is also always informed by values. Um, and that's a whole, perhaps another discussion in itself. But our aid program also does embody the idea that as um, a well-off country, um, that we should be a good international citizen, that it, it serves our values for us to make a contribution uh, to try and help others who are less well off. So break that down for me a little bit further, Richard. How specifically does the concepts of development, that economic backsliding and Australia's aid program relate to foreign policy? Well, these days, of course, because... Um, AusAid was merged with DFAT, um, they're now considered uh, all the time side by side. Look, it's hard to me, really hard for me to make a comparison here because I said to you earlier, I never really worked on aid policy before and I couldn't tell you whether we have um, uh, significantly changed the way aid is now integrated into foreign policy, but it certainly feels more integrated to me now. And a good example of that is in the department, um, a lot of the bilateral aid is now devised within the divisions and at the post that also implement all other aspects of foreign policy. And so really from the ground up, there's a discussion, an everyday discussion about how um, our aid spending can help um, advance our broader national interests and connect very strongly with the rest of our foreign policy so that it's mutually reinforcing rather than pulling in different directions. And that, that sort of discussion, certainly in my two years in the department, as I said, it was almost a daily discussion as we went through um, looking at how our aid program should work in the region. Richard, let's break this down into practice. In your experience, what makes great foreign policy? What are the processes that produce great foreign policy for Australia? Well, like any policy, um, sometimes foreign policy is a bit of a punt, and I'm going to come to that in a minute, uh, because you're dealing with many unknowns and many factors that you really have only limited or no control over. But there are some things you can do to try and maximise your chances of getting it right and to having the effect that you want. And for me, foreign policy, really like any policy, should be developed in contested and open ways. And by that, I mean open to alternative ideas and viewpoints, not just within government, but outside government. I think that's really, really important. It's something that's been drummed into me for a very long period of time, something that was reinforced during my time at the Office of National Ass Assessments. And I think it's more important than ever uh, for two reasons. One, because of the complexity of the world we now live in, it really stretches the ability of any uh, one person to really comprehend and understand all the factors that are pushing and pulling on the world these days. But I think a second really important reason is that um, Australia is not untouched by the kind of political and social polarisation that we see so deeply in the United States. And if you get to uh, a point where emotion replaces reason and where people have a view simply because it's the view of the group that they identify with, then really you're maximising the chance you're going to get your policy wrong because you're just not interrogating your own assumptions. I think there's a few other things that are important here. Um, I've always thought that good foreign policy is multidisciplinary. 
And by that, I mean, if you're thinking about foreign policy, you really have to think about the strategic, the economic. These days, you have to think about the technological, the social dimensions of a particular issue. And if you don't comprehend all of those things, you're probably going to get it wrong. Good foreign policy values expertise. You know, governments occasionally, not very often, I have to say, in Australia, but occasionally launch into things in such a hurry uh, that policy is not thought through. But foreign policy issues are often uh, more complex than they might look on the surface. I think where you can, foreign policy should be as transparent as much as possible. Sometimes that's not possible. I mean, it's a pretty brutal world still out there in, in many parts of the world. And some things that governments do rightly should remain secret. But um, that should always only be a small subset, I think, of foreign policy. And then, look, last point, which is just coming back to taking a punt, um, good foreign policy, you've got to have the courage to transcend ambiguity. And Henry Kissinger once said that creative foreign policy, I'm quoting him here, requires acting on assumptions you can't prove at the time you make them, um, which is always it brings a smile to my face because in some ways, large chunks of the white paper are built on assumptions that we can't actually prove, but we've had our best go at making them. And so you, you can't know at the time whether you really are doing the right thing or, or whether, whether it's going to work. And that can be scary and it can be consequential in both good and bad ways, but often in foreign policy, you just have to do it. Richard, that's strikingly honest uh, for somebody who held the pen on the on on the white paper. Can you tell me a little bit more about this need for contestability? And specifically, you said that now it is more important than ever that policymakers are open to alternative viewpoints from beyond as well as within government. How did that play out in developing a white paper and specifically what were the alternative viewpoints that you were most cognizant of engaging with when you were holding the pen on a, on a foreign policy white paper? Yeah, I think we tried to build as much contestability as we could into the process. I mean, one good thing about the Australian Public Service uh, is by and large, uh, most people believe the same thing. So it is quite a contestable environment. And when you do a white paper, you get an awful lot of advice. Um, and um, sometimes some of my team members would grind their teeth at it, but I would, I would always in- enjoy it because, um, you know, I think it is good to be provoked and challenged. And so we did a couple of things in the white paper to try and make it as contestable as possible. You know, one is we, didn't, we did a lot of consultation, uh, weeks and weeks and weeks of consultation. In fact, I joked to Francis Adamson, the Secretary of the Department at one point that uh, we were just going to keep on consulting and never actually get round to doing the white paper. It was a was a form of procrastination, if you like, because consultation was enjoyable and doing the white paper was hard. And I think, you know, when we were doing the white paper, there's quite a lot of um, consensus on Australian foreign policy, but there are a couple of issues that you know, where there is a big debate. One, of course, is our region and how it's changing and what to do about China, where is America going into the future. Um, And the second is about globalisation and how we can best manage the stresses and strains that come with globalisation and support 
uh, those individuals and those communities that benefit less equally out of globalisation. Richard, one of the things that sometimes we hear in various forums around Canberra, around town, is that development thinking requires an inherently long-term vision. And by that, what we mean is that to address trends of social and economic progress, you need to be thinking in 10, 15, 20, 30-year horizons. And in a department that is increasingly resource constraint with a, with a lot of demands on its time, that type of thinking around development is naturally deprioritised as Australia must respond to things like getting Australia's home, Australians home amidst a pandemic, concerns around China and other immediate critical issues that the department is facing. Is that something that you've seen in your experience and if so, do you have any observations to feed into that? I think it's um, not just a problem for aid policy. I think it's a problem more generally for for foreign policy and thinking about our place in the world. It's not a new problem, of course. You know, I think um, governments are always um, hit hard by the here and now and just managing uh, the day-to-day dramas of the world. And I had a period in my career, well, really the last 10 years, where I worked um, very closely with um, successive Australian governments right at the interface between the public service and the executive. And it really impresses upon you the limits of good uh, policy making it because it's unless you're there, it's really hard to understand just how much pressure ministers and prime ministers are under, how little time they have um, really to stop and carve out time to think long term. And often when you try and build that into your processes, you know, inevitably something will happen, whether it's a domestic drama or a political drama or a global drama. So I think it, it, is, it is a problem. I think it's, it's a problem that um, governments and public services are conscious of. And one, you know, there's some reasons why white papers are problematic and hard to do, but one, one good thing about them is they do actually force the system to stop and think long term and you know we put a 10-year um, <laughs> time limit on our white paper and after three years it's obviously straining at the seams but you know we did really try to look a long way ahead. Mm. Richard and it sounds as though what you're painting is a, a public policy ecosystem that needs a combination of long-term thinking, uh, deep consultation uh, and contestation to, to give rise to the, the best policy possible. Um, Richard, you are calling for an updated foreign policy statement of some description. Um, why? And do you think it's a possibility that there might be one on the horizon? Oh, look, I don't... Uh, I don't know. The, the government could be forgiven for um, rolling its eyes and saying, <laughs> no, thanks, particularly now um, with all that's going on. Um, the government's been really hard pressed, as you uh, indicated earlier, and just all through the course of this year in responding to the, um, the pandemic and that's gripped both domestic and, and foreign policy. And certainly for DFAT, it's 
been an incredibly tough year. We also have, we've also had a very consequential American election and we have a brand new president and it's going to take a little while to see where things land there. But, you know, I think if, uh, if there is enough time and space and energy at some point next year, I think it'd be worth doing. And to be clear, I'm not talking about a whole new white paper process. I mean, we took 12 months. What I'm talking about is something a bit more like the defence strategic update, which was done with a lighter touch and much more quickly. And there are a couple of reasons for doing it. One is uh, in the white paper itself, we we really uh, saw our obsolescence, if you like, because having mapped uh, what we thought was coming, we thought, hmm, okay, well, we're probably going to have to look at our settings fairly regularly. And in fact, the white paper says that. And, you know, I think we picked the right trends uh, at the big forces that were shaping the world. But clearly, they, those forces and trends pushed further and faster and harder than even we might have imagined in the past three years. And our external environment has changed, you know, quite significantly over that time. And I think that's true. Uh, whether you think about the challenge that China poses of American unilateralism, China-US competition, of course, economic nationalism and uh, populism, the challenge of globalisation, the weakness of the multilateral system, you know, they've all really continued to get worse over the past three years. And top of that, we have a pandemic and a smashed global economy. So there's quite a lot uh, to think about. And it's really that pace of change and the deterioration in our environment that drove the idea behind the defence, the update to the defence white paper. And so if for defence, why not for um, foreign policy? Um, you know, when we, uh, in the white paper, we, we described, uh, well, Justin Hayhurst came up with this beautiful line, so I'm going to give him credit. He, as contested and competitive. That was the world that we saw. Uh, and when the PM launched the Defence Strategic Update, he said, uh, poorer, more dangerous and more disorderly. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, that really sums it up. And look, very quickly, the second reason I think uh, it's worth thinking about, at least, is that we're already starting to see foreign policy adjust and adapt to some of these changes, particularly this year. And you have to be following things quite closely to see that because they, you know, they're emerging in speeches and announcements here and there. And I think it would be useful to uh, bring all of that together in a holistic way. And then perhaps lastly, um, you know, the, the people who were most deeply involved in the foreign policy white paper three years ago were uh, Prime Minister Turnbull and Foreign Minister Julie Bishop. Of course, they've both since left the scene. And um, you know, a process that allowed the current leadership to uh, do what we just talked about, which is just step back a bit and think longer term uh, about where they would like to take Australian foreign policy. You know, could it could itself, there's value in just doing that, I think. Richard, it sounds like a pretty strong case for a pause and a rethink at some point in 2021. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together and I do just have two more questions for you. And the first is, what fact, headline or story has touched you most during the COVID-19 period? Well, it's hard to single out any one. Um, you know, 
some of the most moving ones I have found have been about the huge toll taken on nurses and doctors in Southeast Asia and Indonesia, for example. Um, you know, dozens of doctors and nurses have died uh, from COVID, um, you know, really trying to save others. And it's hard to think of more selfless and heroic acts than that. Of course, that's not a, a story unique to developing countries at all. You know, we see that here in Australia and all around the world, the immense courage and dedication of um, our, our doctors and nurses and medical people. I'd have to say that less moved, but most shaken by what uh, we've seen in the United States this year. And it's shaken me because... Uh, here is a country that doesn't lack the resources or the medical infrastructure or the expertise. But really, I think because of uh, the deep fractures in its political culture has ended up, you know, in the most disastrous situation. And to me, it really rams home like nothing else, the madness of deliberately stoking deep political polarisation and extreme views at either end of politics. Um, and, you know, I think that's a real problem for America, an enormous problem for it, and whether any one new president in Joe Biden can hope to fix it, I don't know. I've always strongly believed in the redemptive power of America and its ability to reinvent itself and to make amends uh, but its problems now are very deep um, and uh, you you asked me uh, in the lead up to this event when we were just swapping notes about um, summer reading, well, one of the books that I've got on my desk, uh, which I would like to read uh, if I can, <laughs> over Christmas when things slow me down, is, um, is a book called When America Stopped Being Great. Uh, it's actually by a UK journalist called Nick Bryant, who's lived in America for many years, and he tracks what happened to American politics that kind of produced uh, Donald Trump as president and, and this outcome. And it's, you know, it's, it's quite shocking in many ways to see, and we should be doing everything we can in Australia not to make the same mistakes. Certainly, Richard, many a development analyst in, in my world is turning their attention um, from the people and power and politics of analysing states and developing states uh, and applying those skills and expertise to look at the US experience as well. And I think that that's a nice point for us to finish on um, in, in saying that I think development concepts and issues of economic progress and social progress and polarisation are universal, not just to developing countries, um, but to places like the United States and, and even at home here. So with that, I'd like to thank you for joining us. It's been great talking to you, Richard. And I hope that you enjoy the rest of your summer. Thanks, Bridie. It's been a real pleasure. And I hope when your listeners get to hear this, they're enjoying a really good break after a shocking 2020 and are feeling in a slightly more relaxed and uh, positive state. And let's hope that um, 2021 gets better. Indeed. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Bridie.